0: Hey, Justin. Yes, David. I've come up with a way to save the TV industry. And what is that? A podcast all about TV shows and the people that make them happen. Good. When are we going to start it? Ten seconds ago. This is TV Show and Tell. Welcome back to another episode of TV Show and Tell the podcast about how and why TV gets made. I'm David Bodicum, I'm a TV producer and games consultant from London. And I'm Justin Skoggy, known internationally as the Format Doctor. And we welcome one and all to this, our 10th show extravaganza. And they said it wouldn't last, huh? Well, on today's celebratory menu, we'll be looking at the world of food formats. We'll examine whether broadcasters should be worried about niche television. And our special guest is the prolific composer of music for television shows, Paul Farrar. But first, while I open the champagne and pass around the volivants, it's time to nibble on bites of news from the world of television. So what's taking your fancy, Justin?
1: Well, I wanted to start with a little mention of Bamber Gascoigne, the quiz master of University Challenge in the past, uh, who passed away last month. I knew him a bit in his later years, and I remember him inviting uh, my family to a quiz night down in Richmond where he lived. And it was a measure of the man that he asked me in advance for a question that only my daughter, Nat, who was then 11, would know the answer to just to make her shine. (laughs) It was a question about the pop group Hearsay. And when it came up, about a hundred odd people looked completely baffled. And Nat jumped up with the answer and it really made her day. And I think that shows what a real gent Bamba was.
0: Yeah, an absolute legend of the genre. And I believe he wrote something like a million words for the HistoryWorld.net website. So quite the achievement. Mm -hmm. Well, fitting in with our food theme, there's been a plethora of food stories in the world of formats this week. Jeffrey Zakarian, the chef and restaurateur, has uh, launched a format called Big Restaurant Bet, where he's going to put $250,000 of his own money on the line to back the next rising star in the restaurant world mm. that's somewhat similar to the million pound menu format that we had here in the uk that to run for a couple of series i think also in food news uh, masterchef is moving its production base to birmingham to Digbeth beth lock studios which was founded by the peaky blinders creator stephen knight who i think was also one of the co-creators of millionaire and uh, also gordon ramsey is opening a genuine uh, set of hell's kitchen restaurants in washington and chicago whether or not you get to genuinely be shouted at while you're eating your food i, I <laughs> it, it's not stated here
1: i've been watching the real dirty dancing on e4 which is a celebrity reality competition which is based on uh, recreating the moves and scenes from the cult movie Dirty Dancing with Patrick Swayze and Jennifer Grey. It's an adaptation of the Australian format, actually, from Seven Network in 2019. And it was also adapted last month on Fox in the US. And of course, Bobby Seagull, who was uh, one of our guests in season one of TV show Intel, is taking part and doing very well, I think. It's an odd confectionery, really, for E4's target demographic of 16- to 34-year-olds, given that even the oldest of those wasn't born in 1987. But it's good-natured, and it's quite nice to see reality contestants supporting each other rather than competing to the death.
0: There seems to be some buzz about it, so I guess uh, all PR's good PR. Sticking with the odd demographic
1: theme, BBC3 has the fast and the farmerish. Uh, which is the weirdest weirdest program I think I've ever seen. Well,
0: it's the weirdest title as well. It doesn't work as a pun, and that, that really annoys me. and It puts me off watching it. Yeah, well,
1: it's really hard to describe, to be
0: honest. I mean, it's a tractor
1: competition. The first episode featured bog racing, um, so two teams of guys and a team of gals um, who have to drive their tractor through a very small bog, I have to say. And then there was the X-tractor, which was quite fun, actually. It's a large X-shape cut into the field, and you have to move your way through it going forwards and backwards so you cover every line of the X, and there are obstacles and so on. But they also have to sing tracks of their choosing while they're doing it, which was judged by a Radio 1 DJ. (laughs) (laughs) It's just felt like overkill on so many levels. Um wrapped up with ten pin bowling uh, with tires, tractor tires, and sheds. So again, I'm struggling to understand why that appeals to 16 to 34-year-old skewed female for BBC 3, but there you go.
0: Well, I think when they analysed the audience figures for the revived BBC 3 returning to the usual broadcast network, the the results were inconclusive. (laughs) Let's put it this way. It wasn't like the massive success that perhaps they were hoping for, but neither was it terrible. So,
1: Yeah. Well, we'll see. I mean, the average age of the BBC One viewer is, what, 63 now, I think? Yeah. So if they manage to get half of that, then they're (laughs) still not (laughs) just about within the demographic.
0: And before our interview slot, here's a question for you. What's the connection between these TV theme songs? answer is they're all composed by paul farrah who has worked on an incredible 150 different programs in all kinds of genres quizzes cooking shows travelogues factual magazine programs chat shows you name it he's done it he's also the divisor of his own itv quiz show 1000 heartbeats so there's surely no one better qualified to get our pulse racing when it comes to understanding tv music let's hear from him now Paul Farrow. Welcome to TV Show & Tell. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So how on earth did you get into a world where you get paid for creating dings for contestants answering general knowledge questions?
2: Uh, I suppose the short answer is I had a very musical upbringing. Um, I played in various sort of bands and orchestras and things I used to sing in the uh, cathedral choir at Worcester Cathedral so I was sort of immersed in sort of classical music and stuff from a very you know very young age um, but I was always fascinated by tv music film music I think I saw E.T. when I was about eight and I just I was sitting in the cinema watching it all happen and I, I wasn't aware of what was going on but you know when he finally took off on his bike and you realise that John Williams had been weaving all these little themes and planting all these seeds, and then suddenly he opened his V8 engine, and everything just went. I felt like you know, I thought on the top of my head was going to fly off, and I wonder what I don't know what I, I don't know what's going on, but I want to be part of that world. You know, I just want to do something that 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 it's you know understand what what effect that has on the audience. So I left school when I was 16, um, not because I sort of didn't like school but because i'd already um, made friends with a local recording studio and um, they'd offered me some sort of work experience type thing and so i started there when i was 16 sort of making tea for bands and you know plugging microphones in and microphone sorting drum kits out the very technical side of things and what surprised me was i assumed in a professional recording studio everyone would know a lot more about music than me and they didn't um they knew a lot more about the technical side of it but you know none of them knew who mozart was nobody could turn a g minor into a g major they, they, there wasn't much in the way of sort of musical so eventually they kind of started putting me into sort of little things that required jingles or somebody needed an accompaniment for something or a, you know pushy showbiz mom brings their daughter in and wants her to be madonna so i'd knock together a little backing track you know um and sort of went into sort of radio music from there kind of advertising jingly type things um, and then sort of slowly started dipping my toe into into the worlds of sort of tv music most musicians typically are are very bad at being told what to do and when to do it and that's why they're musicians and of course yeah. music for media is entirely about being told what to do and when to do it so if you can manage being told what to do and when to do it and it's got to be six and a half seconds long and it's got to be pink there and that has to happen there and things three things have to happen before that if you don't mind those kind of sort of structural frameworks and stuff um you can have a lot of fun and i I think it's i think it's an incredibly rewarding profession because of the sheer range of stuff that i get asked to do
0: because structural is a very important word especially for um your era if I may put it like that because uh, when we're talking about the, one of the first shows you, you did Weakest Link, that was an, an era where the, the music almost provided a
2: framework a structure to the show itself. Um, the big the big difference of show like Weakest Link is that most of the music is played into the studio while the contestants are answering the questions um, which meant that of the 50 or 60 different cues that there are in the show um they all had to be finished and timed so they could play them in almost kind of operatically so there's this kind of discrete chunks of things going on and of course uh, when i did it um it was it was literally just a daytime pilot um for bbc Two. it was you know and i had to finish it all to the level that it is you know that it was uh before they'd even shot the first sort of pilot really so it was a lot of work and a lot of it was backwards and forwards i get these sort of reams of things and in those days i was sending cds in jiffy bags and the bbc would say you know the last two mm-hmm. seconds of track 19 can we have those put onto the first seven seconds of track 74 and all this kind of crazy stuff so it was a real i mean an absolute I don't want to use the word bore Lake, but yeah, let's use the word bore Lake. But it was good because what it meant is all that work had been done, and actually it took the weight off the production because once they'd got it in the system, and once they'd got it, it was a case mm. of just just rolling it out. It was like a kind of a it was a, it was almost like a West End show in the way that everything was polished and, and and all that sort of stuff. And again, same with the chase. It's 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 one of those things that you know we got it right at the start and made it very you know very very specific and rigid they're playing it into the studio it, it's, it just it just runs like a like a an edit decision list or a playlist or a theater list
1: so let's track back a bit when you get the call for a show that you haven't seen or perhaps a show that hasn't aired yet how specific uh, a brief do you get uh, do people just say oh we want something a bit funky or do you know what what's the what's the nature of the brief
2: so a big part of the job is to be able to help them communicate to you what it is they're trying to do. Um, and I, I, I my job, actually the vast majority of my job is to try and get people to explain things to me without trying to use musical terminology. So talk about emotions, yeah. use adjectives, colors, um, uh, logos graphics are really important you know send me a little just a fag packet sketch of you know who who who's the audience you're hoping to get what channel is it on what time is it on what 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 are your influences what are you listening to what are you looking at um, to try and soak me into their world and ultimately I think when it works well um, whoever's briefing me uh, gets me to come up with a a tune or a soundtrack or a set of sounds or music or whatever that's that feels inevitable for that world um i always remember johnny ive you know mr ipod and mr iphone was you know he always he always loved the idea of design being inevitable in other words of course that's where you put the button because your thumb's there of course that's how big the screen is because that's how big your palm is you know and the true sophistication is simplicity and particularly because a lot of these shows are you know, they're very immersive. The sets are quite big. They're quite deep. Some of them are, you know, they're they're sort of inviting you into their world. And the music has to, I think, provide... It's probably closer to a bit of the scenery than it is to a bit of the dialogue because you've got to feel like you're in that world. So a lot of the music that I do, certainly on The Chase, is music for the in-between times when there's nothing actually going on. It's just a bit of banter between Bradley and the contestants or, or something. And there's not a lot going on, but you'd feel if it wasn't there, kind of a musical air conditioning, I call it sometimes, that that idea that you're, <laughs> you're in that world, you're in that spaceship, you're in whatever world that they are and they're controlling it all and you are part of that. So they can sort of breathe it in as it were. But ultimately, it can be just a, I've had a little idea, what do you think of this? um and I, I think that was the case with the wheel um it, Michael just really liked the little idea that I'd done and that was the first idea that I'd had for that I had a few other ideas after it but they kept coming back to that first one and it just kind of tickled him and it just kind of he, he heard something that he quite liked and
0: a tricky balancing act isn't it in terms of you've got to communicate what the show's about but also you could potentially go a bit too literal So, for example, something like the pet show. Yeah. I I think in like the 1980s, there would have been a lot more like woofs and barks and and meows and things going over over the top of that.
2: Yeah, I think I did a few of those um, in the kind of development of that, and and just sort of I threw it out there. It was kind of sort of ukulele going dum 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 dum, dum," you know, like ha ha, ha, woof woof kind of type stuff. But again, (laughs) that's only because. You know, they hadn't made the thing yet. And even they were kind of unsure about what tone they were going for. And yes, it is dogs and it is cats and it is, you know, uh, so it's, it, it does have a kind of a friendly warmth to it. But at the same time, what they were actually, as the show developed, they were going for something a little bit more majestic and, you know, sweeping landscapes and, you know, it's coming, you know, sheep and a and bit herriety a bit herriety yes exactly so then then i you know we got string section in and did it a bit more kind of positive and sort of you know life affirming y type stuff and yeah they they seem to like that but a lot of these a lot of those kind of processes you sort of have to sometimes go down that road and it not mm. right for them to say yeah we thought about that that's too obvious let's let's not do that
1: so to what extent do you bring something from the the genre of the show into the music uh, for example I mean, you mentioned the wheel, I think that that sort of driving rhythm um, naturally goes with the the, the movement of the wheel. I'm pretty sure I, I heard the slight ringing of skate on ice in Dancing on Ice somewhere in the <laughs> background there uh, maybe i just imagined
2: it <laughs> no 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 you did in fact i did a ton of the sound design for Don's and ice and it's all the big steak on the back of a frying pan going whoosh, like that exactly
1: yeah. there we go yeah. so to what extent do you use that as a as an inspiration or as a starting point
2: yeah it's got to do a lot of things obviously it's got to set tone it's got to you know have mechanical function as well but also it's a branding exercise a lot of it so you know when you hear the wheel rhythm, it's sort of, it's got to get you, it's got to put you in that world of familiarity. And oftentimes, musically, you're trying to get a little hook to, to to hang it on, whether it's the string line in The Chase, or whether it's the stabs in Weakest Link, or, you know, you say the the, the blade things in, in Dancing and Ice, or, or any of those things that you can get that sort of, that give you a kind of a sonic well, then actually going back to um, Weakest Link, uh, as I did two years ago for NBC, was a really interesting example of, of that, to pull apart the original recordings and look at them and go, okay, th- this is what it is and this is what hundreds of millions of people around the world have heard and, and received and kind of recognised. Which elements do I keep and which don't I keep? And it's a very fascinating thing about how people receive music. You know, you could change one little element and somebody go, it's not quite right, There's there's something missing. You could add another element and perhaps it'll drown one of the original ones out because you want to reinvent, you want to push the boundaries, you want to make it, you know, 20 years later, you've got to do something new. But at the same time, you've kind of got this precious core thing. Tom Cruise is rebooting Mission Impossible. If he calls it Mission Impossible, that's fine. But there's only one other element that he needs to keep, and that's Lalo Schifrin's bam, 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 bam. But and if he's got those, he can do whatever he wants. It's Mission Impossible. <laughs> that's the point. Do you know what I mean? It's got that. That's how. That's how strongly associated that music is with that title. I put some of my clips up on my YouTube channel, and all of the comments and stuff, eighty percent of them are. Oh, I remember this. I used to be at my nan's, and we used to watch this at tea time when it was on. And you know, it's it's a very much a personal association. The new nostalgia, <laughs> sort of, yeah. And I think it is. It's that kind of. It is. TV is a kind of nostalgic thing because it's necessarily a domestic thing.
1: Hmm. So going back to the incorporation of elements of the show into the music, I guess a particular example of that is a thousand heartbeats.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, that I mean, again, that's that's me being entirely selfish because after years of rating creating music for quiz shows i thought i'd create a quiz show to go with some music that i'd written and and i think that was one of the things that made it comparatively easy to, to get made and to get interest for because obviously tv people come at things from a tv angle they're always looking at you know who's the talent is it about money is it about this is it about you know tension is it about familiarity is it fun and and i just went in there going look we've got a string quartet and we attach it to the heart rate of the player and the player's heart rate gets up as they get stressed. The string quartet plays faster. And probably 80% of the meetings I had with TV producers were going, "What? Oh, you can do that with real instruments. You can change the tempo of what they're playing. Of course, any musician just goes, yeah, that's what we do all the time. you know. But of course, obviously a TV person wouldn't know that. But to me, it was just like, well, yeah, of course you get a piece of music and they're playing it at 70 beats per minute and if you if you've all got a click in your ear and you're watching your conductor you can take it up to 150 beats per minute it's really no problem but
0: but the feedback loop was the genius thing though. i think because of the way that if if you listen to music getting faster then your heartbeat gets faster so yeah. therefore the music now yeah. that there's,
2: there's playing
0: oh, starts yeah. to play faster and
2: we, we had some proper proper panickers i mean i think it was one i think the highest we got to was like was 198 or something and there was we had an onset medic and i'm I'm conducting the quartet and i actually saw him stand up with his case on the side He was about three feet from me like at any moment this poor old lady was going to keel over uh, so why did you
0: choose that sort of i believe you called it baroque
2: the music i knew it had to be completely flexible so for example one of the one of the celebrities was tess Daly, who's super fit and cool as anything and of course because she's a married to the host she wasn't even stressed at all and we couldn't get a heart rate above 65 beats per minute to her it was just another day in the studio Whereas, <laughs> you know, uh, you know a, a slightly overweight panicky person who you know who's never been at a tv studio let alone had the you know vernon k put their arm around them and the lights and the money in the question you know it's an incredibly hostile environment so whatever i did musically had to work at 65 beats per minute and 165 beats per minute hence why Doing it in Baroque style, where there's lots of little notes, you can sort of, you know, it works okay slow, but you can keep speeding it up and it just gets, you know, it's lots of notes, basically. It's quite ornamental. It's quite sort of detailed and fiddly, as it were. So it works at any tempo. We could have played it at 250 beats per minute. We could have played it at 25 beats per minute, and it would still sound as coherent. I think that some
0: people would be surprised that, you, that you're that you using still live musicians because some people would just go, oh, isn't it just somebody with a keyboard doing all
2: of this stuff? you're always trying to put as much real instruments on it as possible. Okay. These, these instruments we've got and the computers and the keyboards and samples and stuff, they're incredibly sophisticated, but they're still not the real thing. You know, you could put a, you know, put a piano piece in the hands of a good pianist and it's, it's going, they're going to bring their own magic to it. So for every single show and every single thing, I would always try and spend all of the amount of money on getting as much real players in as possible. And this is a perfect example. I mean, the chase was an example of that where I'd, Um, I'd I'd mocked up the the sort of the the theme that I thought could work and I'd done it on samples, and they loved it. They were like, this is great. This is brilliant. I was like, look, let's get a big orchestra on this. Let's do this properly. And they were like, no, we haven't got the money for that. It'll... It works. We love it. And I was like, come on, it'll be great. Let's do it. And they they didn't want to do it. And in the end, I thought, I don't care. I'm going to spend the money. I'm going to pay for this myself. And, you know, if you don't like it, you don't like it. Because I did got a big string section on it, played it back to them. And they were like, Oh my God, that's so much better. (laughs) Have That kind of like, yes, of course. But of course, but by the same token, you wouldn't expect them to know the difference because it's there, it works. And it's only when you have that added value that you hear, Oh my god, this could be amazing, and it adds it to another level. Like Ninja Warrior did the same with them. We got a big orchestra on that one, and ITV loved it. You know, they were just like, okay, this costs money. We're we going to blow the budget on it, but it's going to it's going to sound better. It's going to have some, you know, some depth to it, and something that you can be kind of proud of a little bit, rather than just be another thing, you know.
0: In this segment, we're going to focus on a particular genre of programming, namely food shows. It's a genre that's involved from simple how-to cooking shows to become much more formatted over the years, with shows such as Iron Chef, Chopped, MasterChef, and Come Dine With Me having different takes. So why are food shows so popular, and what's the future for them? So, uh, luckily, I'm here with somebody who happens to have devised his own food show called uh, Chef in Your Ear. So uh, why don't you just kick off by telling us a little bit about how that works, Justin?
1: Chef in Your Ear is a standalone competition in which two chefs compete to create a restaurant-quality dish in an hour. However, they're not allowed in the kitchen, and they have to cook remotely down the ear of a contestant who is notably useless in the kitchen. So that's the game. The chefs are in two booths, the the contestants are in their kitchens, and the results are judged by a professional foodie.
0: But it's kind of like your typical fish out of water scenario, but rather than taking like a a week to get the footage like a documentary series and having to edit it down, this is something that you you can almost play out in real time. uh, Yes,
1: absolutely. We play it strictly to an hour and it edits to a variety of different lengths, which we'll come on to. One of the things that's really worked with it is that for the chefs, it's seen as a genuine challenge. You know, they've they've done so many things, and sometimes they dumb themselves down for reality programming, but this is something they haven't done. And one of the things it forces them to do is to change the language that they use. Effectively, the contestants are, are being their sous chefs, but they expect their sous chefs to understand what a roux is and what this, this implement is and so on, hmm. or even what a particular herb looks like and we have a lot of fun with that lack of communication between the two.
0: Mm -hmm. How has this format evolved as you've had to adapt it to different countries?
1: We started on the Food Network Canada. The show at that point ran at 39 minutes, which is what the Americans call a short hour, and over time it's got gradually longer in its normal version, so it's up to about 45 minutes. But in Latin America, for example, it's run from anywhere from 110 to 140 minutes.
0: So over two hours.
1: Over two hours. Two hours, 20 minutes. Two hours, 20 minutes in Spain as well. It's been produced in 13 countries so far. And to go back to your original question about why food shows are popular, one of the benefits of the genre is that it can play at different lengths and in different parts of the schedule. So as as I've said, chef plays from anywhere from 39 minutes to 140 minutes. But it's also played in morning, in daytime, access prime time, prime time. It's been stripped daily, it's been weekly. We've played it with celebrities in Holland and in Chile. We've played it with kids in Canada. So that range of possibilities is very appealing to broadcasters because when you pitch the show, They've got a lot more slots that they can think about fitting it into or demographic audiences to target.
0: But also in one of the I suppose the flexible things about formats, not just in terms of length, but you're also able to reflect the culture uh, in terms of the people that you have on, the chefs you've got on, they're gonna be local chefs, doing food that's local with local, you know, produce as well.
1: Yes, absolutely. So you're right. You can target the food and the style of food so we did the most recent series was in andalusia in spain and a key part of the commissioning was in order to be able to feature local andalusian dishes similarly in mongolia the mongolian series they did four series in mongolia which ran very close to the original canadian format but with a great deal more blood
0: well, from presumably, from the the, the ingredients, they're <laughs> not the, <laughs> yeah, not the contestants.
1: Mongolian blood sausage, which is basically um, sausages uh, that sit in a bag of blood, and the bag is made of a sheep's gut, is quite spectacular. And then in France, where of course they took the food the food part of it far more seriously than everywhere else, and they stripped it across the week so that the contestants would learn more about cooking across five days. In Holland, it was played very much for laughs, with celebrities mucking about and far too many things getting set on fire. So yeah, each different country has been able to bring its own culture and TV culture as well to the programme which is, again, a part of the flexibility of a cooking show.
0: You linked to an article uh, which was very interesting about how there's a whole generation of chefs and recipe writers on YouTube who are sort of just saying no to television and just kind of doing their own thing, which I Mm. I thought was very interesting. Mm. Well, I think it speaks to the gap
1: between YouTube programming and TV programming, which is all of the gubbins that goes with it and all the introductions and all the rigmarole and rubric that you find missing in YouTube shows, which just get straight to the heart of it. And again, I think cooking suits that. There is an immediacy between the person who's talking about food or cooking the food and the person who's watching, which I think television formats have to be very careful about. Some of them now start to feel very labored and very complicated and very formulaic. If you think back to Jamie Oliver's original series, the, one of the reasons that broke through was precisely because he did that. He just went on TV and said, I'm this bloke, I love cooking, let's get cooking mm. in his kitchen. And you compare that to you know, MasterChef Australia or something with a, elaborate <laughs> and over the top and complicated reality stuff and everything
0: else that goes with it. So... I just get confused between the the title sequence of Neighbours and MasterChef Australia (laughs) because they're both the same. It's just like... Well,
1: as I've said many times, if you want to see the extreme version of any format, watch the Australian version.
0: I mean, that's how basically Joe Wicks got started, isn't it? He just sort of was really struggling as a personal trainer. He just started to put these really fast, hyper quick cut recipes saying, you know, take a bunch of broccoli, this and and there you are, you've got a smoothie or whatever. And these things would be like so, so quick to watch. The difference between what you
1: watch and what you treat as an instructional video is really important something again on on chef in your ear that we struggled with at the beginning in, in development was trying to find that sweet spot between creating the kind of food that you would be proud to, to serve in a restaurant but also the kind of food that you would make at home and i think that again is something which some of the flabbier formats have now rather lost sight of it's all about watching people create something fabulous out of spun sugar and and brown rice as opposed to actually something that you'd make at home or something that you'd want to eat
0: there's a channel called epicurious which is an interesting one because they have almost their own formats their own mini format series so for example one of the ones that they do is they take a pro chef and a home cook and they give the pro chef the home cooks like $7 bag of uh, ingredients. And then they give the home cook the $130 really expensive ingredients Mm. and see how they, they treat each other's uh, ingredients, which is an interesting one. And then, um, They have another one called price points, where they get an expert on a really specific subject like salt or bread or beer, and they give them like like an ingredient A and ingredient B, and they do a comparison of the two, and they sort of go, oh, well, I I think this one... Is going to be the more expensive one because it has a you know more interesting flavour profile and it mm. lasts longer and it's got different crystal size and so you get to learn a bit more about a particular ingredient that way uh, through a sort of a fairly simple like quiz format effectively.
1: Yes, I mean I think that food is history, food is science, food is social engineering, food is beauty. It is so many things, it is so fundamental to human existence that, you know, that's the primary reason why for television, even though on television you can neither taste it or smell it, but it still remains that incredibly accessible way into all sorts of different other subjects.
0: Well, we better wrap it up there because I'm getting extraordinarily hungry right now. (laughs) And now it's time to pick the baton back up as we return to our exclusive chat with TV music composer Paul Farrer. So, like taking a theme such as like The Weakest Link, like what are the, sort of like the hints or motifs and the ways that you're ramping up tension that perhaps we might not realise.
2: These things are a lot more detailed than anyone imagines along along that journey you're taking people using instrumentation such as strings you know you're looking at tempo you're looking at um are we using orchestral instruments are we using rhythm what are the things here and on weakest link obviously we've got a um we've got a ticking clock that's a that's a very important part of it particularly during the, the question rounds um so there's a sort of a the structure of it is rigidly 120 beats per minute so it's you know it's one beat per second because it
0: would be like a bit annoying having this clock going down in the corner but the music is not not sort of matching the 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 figures and the
2: absolutely yes so the temp the tempo is is fixed at you know 120 so it's it's one beat per second effectively and in the weakest link we create the tension as we move through the question rounds by every five seconds there's a little lift every 10 seconds there's a bigger lift every 15 seconds there's an even bigger one every 30 seconds there's a bigger lift and these lifts are kind of arrangementy type things that sort of move up and down and then there's a key change at sort of a minute and another one at a minute and a half so you're sort of feeling it as a Piece of music kind of progress and grow all the way through, and I think that was one of the the things that made it work very well. Because I remember in some of the earlier episodes, you know, Anne used to tell the contestants off for running out of time. You know, she would say she'd berate them, say, "Look, listen to the music. It's telling you that you should be banking and that your time's running out." You know, in other words, it's it's not just for the viewers in that sense. It's 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 for the contestants because they are you know they are getting the the, the tension and a lot of the information about what's going on from the music. You know, when you hear it sort of building and then go up.
0: Okay, so we'll listen out for that now. So you, you've got something prepared. So just by all means,
2: fire away. Basically, so the weakest thing I did in uh, sort of January, February two thousand. So when uh, Aaron uh, Solomon came back to me and told me that we're going to we're going to reboot it, it was it was quite a big task to physically get all that stuff into the new computers because none of the computer files worked and (laughs) I I had to buy some of the synths from Japan again uh, it was was like an archaeological kind of like going into the past but I managed to get all this stuff and the music sheets and all this sort of stuff and managed to get it working and um, sort of we've got some some sort of the original original sort of sounds that I, I used to have from my synths I don't know if you can hear this can you hear that We've got a little bit of something going on there. We've got the um, uh, some sort of bell synths things that were driving it. That you may recognise. So you've got this sort of bell thing that drives it. Uh, along with it, we've got the uh, the sort of the clock tick that's going along. That's there as well. And there's these sort of these sort of synthy noises that are sort of a sort of analog synth. And really, the, the, the sort of the main bulk of the weakest link as we know it is, is is those those elements, really. So let's put a few of them together here, which is sounds a bit like this. And then at the end, we've got a, a famous stab, builds to a. That sort of thing. So that's a sort of basic kind of 2000 package. Um, but obviously for, you know, we've moved on a bit and uh, this was a, an exercise of, you know, what can we add to this? So could, can we get some depth? Can we get some, can we modernise it? Can we make it a little bit more dramatic? So it was me trying to sort of infuse it with a little bit of, I don't know, sort of modern, slightly more filmic things. So I, I wanted to beef up the rhythm a little bit. So I added some some Japanese taikos that sound a bit like this. Um, so we got that sort of thing. There's also some um, digital stuff going on here. Um, but the big addition was uh, was orchestral instruments, which is something that I, I I didn't really have in the the original version because the samples weren't very good. But the samples this time were, were much better, so I added some uh, uh, some violins. We've got some uh, cellos. Brass, which is predominantly the, uh, the trombones with the French horn sort of counterpoint. And of course, all of this is balancing additional things onto what's original and what people recognize, but without drowning it out. So when we stick it all together, you've got this kind of fusion of the old and the new, which sounds a little bit like this. which sort of ticked all the original boxes, but also brought us up to date a bit.
1: Marvellous. So we talked quite a lot about game shows and obviously where the music is uh, very integrated into the format. When you come to things like chat shows and stuff like that, to what extent are you trying to be front of house and to what extent are you are you trying to be behind the scenes?
2: Yeah, I mean, there are some jobs that are much more traditional in the in sort of the, the TV terms. Um, like you've got a house band. So for example, on, on McIntyre's big show, um, I was kind of like the house band guy, but then because there wasn't a lot of uh, music in the, in the body of the show itself. But then I got roped in because then the, the culmination of each show was this thing called Unexpected Start where they pick someone out and they put them on the stage. And it was almost my job as musical director to prepare those backing tracks. And that was a huge job each week because it was like massive. We'd have orchestras and bands and choirs and, and the whole thing had to be done without the person knowing it was being done. So I'd be looking at sort of footage of them singing at the back of a pub on a phone and I'd try and make make the arrangement so it wouldn't be a surprise to them because they've got like an hour from when they're plucked out of the thing to... Being shoved on stage. I've got to teach them the song while they're being sewn into their clothes. So, in that sense, I was trying to be just, oh, I've done the theme tune. But actually, I was, you know, it's like the godfather. They wrote me in to just do all of it. And it was great. I mean, such a miracle of a show, wonderful show. But then, other things like the Royal Variety Performance, that's a much more old fashioned thing where it is a theme tune. You've got walk ons, you walk offs, you've got the house band. Other things. I mean, certainly quiz shows, like you say, are just absolutely ramful of music. And for me, a big part of it is the sound design. Uh, David and I spoke about dings at the start. But yeah, I mean, it is... I, I love doing those those tiny little bits of shrapnel and actually one of the hardest one of the biggest jobs i wouldn't say hardest but one of the biggest sections of taking the wheel to NBC. so i think it starts next month or something um over there was there, there's some little format changes and format points it's it's these tiny little things actually are really huge because you know right answer thing you hear it 20 30 50 times a show so it's got to be right it's got to sound like it belongs in that world. And you can do all sorts of clever stuff like, you know, making sure that they're in the right key for the music that you know is going to be playing quietly in the background, or or if it's a wrong one, you can make it in a dissonant key. So it sort of, it doesn't have to be as loud, but you still know. And would those elements
1: effect- have been different between the UK and the US version of the wheel, the shrapnel, as you say?
2: Yeah, yeah, the shrapnel. Um, it's Michael show. He's the format holder. He's also the host of the show. So, and he's a very much a kind of a, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And I think this, this speaks very much about the nature of um, Hollywood and TV production over there is, you know, you've got an army of 20 producers who are all saying, you know, let's fix it. Let's change it. And he seems to spend all of his time saying, don't touch it. It works. I know it works. Don't touch it. And then they go, that's great. Let's make it better. You know, you think Oh God. And so what, one of the big, one of the big things was for my wheel theme which obviously plays quite a big part of it because when it's spinning, everyone sings along to it and, and all that sort of stuff. They wanted to do some fun versions of that based on the celebrities who were going to be there. Um, so I'd sort of tweak it to do a kind of a, you know, a funk one or a rock one or a, a sound effects based on a kind of almost like a sort of pastiche mm. of whoever was on that an expert what was that so got a big list of the celebrities and they were like well let's let's try one for for this person and oh they're really famous for doing that so let's let's make it and that was really good fun i mean that was that was that was that was huge but i mean yeah an enormous amount of work it took about half of last year but it was i think the end result is really worth it because it's sort of it's 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 this show that's actually really bespoke it fits everything already and they've got all these new new, these new people in and and then you know the music that you you, you've heard a thousand times now is slightly different and so we had some fun with that and that's good but yeah it's it's a it's an interesting journey a a few shows that i've done have have gone to america and, and 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 seeing the process of how they survive or sometimes don't uh, going across the atlantic in terms of american production styles um weakest link the first incarnation was was brilliant they, they just you know the bbc were like will allow you to have one extra hi hat or something um um and oddly enough when uh, when Aaron brought it back onto NBC 2 years ago or last year whatever it was um yeah he was he couldn't have been better he, he his his production style and his production team were just exactly like the original weakest link team this is a real core small group of people that really care about the show and as a result it was brilliant it worked really really well the ones where it doesn't work so well are the ones where you get an email that's CC'd with like 25 other people. And they start off by saying, we are so stoked to hear what you're going to make of this next queue. Oh my God, we can't wait. And you kind of look at the queue and it's a three second thing that goes, and you're kind of like, really? Are (laughs) you Are you? You're not really, are you?
0: No. This next question will make me seem like 86 years old. I love TV themes so much. I actually have a Spotify playlist of them, but I have to say I do find it harder to either hum or sing more modern themes. So I'm wondering, is that, is that because the style of music that we employ now as, as, as TV theme music has changed to something that's less, less melodic, less, less easy to sing?
2: No, the problem is that cool is a commodity now in TV. Everyone wants to have the show that's cool. And music, by its very nature, um, melodic music is not very cool rhythmic music's cool you know music with attitude is really cool music that's sexy is even cooler but that cocoa pops is not cool but Mm. you remember it Mm. and everyone understands the importance of you know a catchy melody but if you give them a catchy melody most of the time they'll go it's not very cool is it can we have you know some funky guitars or some synths or something can we have it make it sound like doja cat or you know Kanye West? <laughs> none of which is written from a melodic perspective so again you know again without being you know well back in the old days it was better but but the old ones probably were the best ones because they allowed melody to be a thing faulty towers is a beautiful melody it's there's so much james harriet black beauty all those kind of things they're melodies it's all about the tune.
0: Well, you 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 mentioned to tick off all my favourite themes uh, from my Spotify playlist, so um, I'm slightly worried about my internet security now. Um, (laughs) But uh,
2: I'm the person that's been lurking around your bins.
0: (laughs) Well, anyway, uh, Paul, uh, very grateful for your time. You're going to be back shortly, um, but uh, for the moment, uh, Paul Ferrat, thanks very much. So now we're going to do a little segment on niche television and perhaps what you might call the long tail of options available to viewers. Now Here in the UK, we had Storm Eunice hit our shores. And Justin, did you pick up any of this phenomenon called Big Jet TV?
1: Yes, I did. So Big Jet TV was this live feed watching planes landing at Heathrow.
0: Just suddenly, it just went viral. Everyone sort of went, "Guy, you've got to look at this. It's amazing." As all these jets sort of came to wobble down into Heathrow and sometimes land and sometimes have to go around. They had two hundred thousand concurrent viewers at its peak, and they think about seven million different viewers uh, watched at least some of it overall. uh, Which led us to think, well, you know, do broadcasters now have to start worrying about? ultra niche channels such as big jet tv or what you might call narrow casting rather than broadcasting i think it's always interesting to sort of think about the number of channels that are available to, to viewers because you sort of might go well on my tv guide let's say i've, I've got a skybox and there might be two or three hundred channels on there but hmm. like really the, the the real number is much bigger than that i mean youtube has got 38 million active channels wow. so so it really the, the the figure is many 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 more times than that twitch has got 7.5 million active channels and some of these twitch channels are getting audiences that that say even a decent sized satellite channel would envy. I mean, some of these gaming channels for some of the more popular sort of shoot 'em up games may easily get sort of three hundred thousand, four hundred thousand viewers. Now, those are worldwide audiences, so we're not sort of comparing apples with apples here. Mm. But still, sort of, what's your 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 take on this? Is it something that broadcasters are going to have to watch?
1: I think the clue is in the word "broad." Ultimately, broadcasters are there to serve quite a large catchment area. So in a way, they're not competing. They have programming that goes to different demographic audiences at different times of day. And of course, they're following the the advertising if it's a commercial channel as well. So they're also trying to capture the viewers that the advertisers want to sell stuff to. So in one sense, I don't think they're really competing with each other. But as you say, eyeballs are eyeballs. Where it goes wrong, I think, is where broadcasters try to also be niche broadcasters
0: you see you said that that they've got different content but I mean, for example, I saw a Channel 5 program a week or two ago, which was something to do with basically dash cam footage. Mm. Now, if you wanted to watch a show of dash cam clips, there's there's whole channels dedicated to that on YouTube. And so I was sort of thinking, well, like, what's the the logic of of them taking effectively a a clip show that you could easily watch on YouTube and just sticking it out on on Mm. Channel 5? Well, you're right. I think that Channel 5 show has been there a long time. But so
1: it's, it's quite interesting. me you know, which one came first? Did people get conditioned to the idea that they like watching dash cam and police chases on TV and then just find loads and loads of content on, on YouTube? Same with the with the jet landings, actually. I, I've watched YouTube videos of pilots landing in very difficult conditions long before Big Jet TV came along. Hmm. I don't know... I get the idea that broadcasters should be concerned about how they bring eyeballs to their screens and that people may be watching other stuff on YouTube, but I'm not sure how they should respond to it. I'm not sure that they can respond by doing the same thing, particularly unless they pick up a particularly popular phenomenon. And decide to package it up, and buy the rights, and put a good presenter in front of it, write a witty script, you know, have a comedian deliver it, so that actually they can deliver a more packaged, more streamlined, more professional version of the same thing.
0: Hmm. I was having a look through my um, YouTube history to see the more weird niches that I've somehow managed to fall into watching. Um, one of the more interesting ones that just, just, just goes to show kind of like quite how detailed some of these things are. If you take a, a big subject like Walt Disney, so you, you, there are people that are Disney fans and like cover the latest things to do with Disney. That's fine. Um, but there's like a show called WDW News Today, which is almost like your like news show for just Disney News. So they have like a theme music and graphics and like news reports and reviews and they sort of tell you all about the the new merchandise that's coming out or changes to the rides or so. If you want to have like your own news story about just Disney stuff, um, but even more niche than that, there is a thing called the Disney food blog where they have just videos about food. At Disney resorts, wow! <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> and it's not particularly niche either. They have something like two hundred thousand followers, wow. so there must be a lot of people that that uh, are out there for their um, their Mickey shaped pretzels. <laughs> <laughs> Other things that I sort of randomly watch are flight reports. So when people go on an aircraft, they take all of their GoPros and things, and they they um, give you a, a, a tour of the seats. They show you what food they've eaten. They show you like the, you know their takeoff and landing and, and and things like that. And they're some of them are more critical, and some of them are just more sort of informational. Mm. But like I say, I've no, I've no idea why why <laughs> I watch these things. So just I don't know. I suppose it's my my internet version of white noise, I guess. Yes. I mean, again,
1: looping it back to television, I one of my guilty pleasures used to be worst places to be a pilot. I don't know if you ever saw that. I think it was on Channel mm. 4, which was a series about mostly about island hopping in Indonesia, actually. But it was about the places where pilots who are flying small commercial planes have very difficult environments in which to land. One of them was a, a, a runway that sloped upwards as you approached it. You just think about that. Mm. You're coming down, but the runway is tilting up. And another one which I loved, which was basically the the runway was for the rest of the day and the rest of the week was a market. (laughs) Um, And it it only stopped being a market as the plane was on final approach. (laughs) So there'd be this mad scramble to grab stalls and goats and children and get them out of the way. Yeah and the plane would come in and land, and then the market would
0: come back again. <laughs> if, the, if you landed too soon, at least you get the bonus of the, the occasional free mango. Or <laughs> yeah.
1: but the image from the cockpit of all these people scurrying to get everything out of the way is absolutely terrifying.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and finally, Paul Farah has a rather amusing anecdote to share with us in our show and tell segment. And Paul is back with us again. So, Paul, have you got something to show
2: and tell us about? The thing I've brought into show and tell today is a greyhound. Now, about five years ago, four years ago, the uh, the Chase spinoff, Beat the Chasers, was uh, was commissioned by ITV, and uh, spoke to the producers, and we sort of said, "Well, you know, what are we going to do with this?" And I said, "Well, this this is a great opportunity to have a kind of a an older." more serious brother for the chase because it's a primetime show it's bigger money it's 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 sort of slightly faster moving it's kind of darker it's it's on late at night so you can have some sort of adult humor so it's got this kind of slightly more seriousness to it so i thought well what of the great piece a starting point for the Chasers, would be to use the chaser walk on when they come on and sit down as my main theme so take that as a starting point and expand it out and so that's what i did and Whole new bunch of music, whole new suite of music. Uh, but I wanted to have its own identity and yet feel familiar to Chase audiences because it's the Chase, but not really. And it's all of them, but it's kind of like, you know, all that sort of stuff. And somebody sent me a clip of their Greyhound <laughs> freaking out, watching Beat the Chasers. Right. I was like, what's going on here? And basically the, what was happening was this Greyhound's owner watched the Chase every night at five o'clock and the greyhound knows that's when dinner time is. <laughs> <laughs> so at nine o'clock, he turns to beat the chasers on and this dog's sort of sitting there listening and it's like, I'm about to get fed. <laughs> and it starts freaking out and it's completely, and this guy was like, he saying, look, this, 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 this innocent animal, it's understood the sonic world. It's understood what I've tried to do, which is make it kind of like sound familiar and yet not be repetitive, that it is different, but the same. And this dog got it. I'm about to have my dinner again. And he's watching beat the chasers and this dog's flying around the house at like nine 30 at night. And this guy sent it to me saying, you might want to look at that. And I looked at that and I went, that's got to be better. That's got to be more an honest response to my music than any award or any kind of viewing figures, just that innocent animal in itself, understanding what I was trying to achieve. And to me, There's no higher praise than that.
0: Paul Farrett, thank you very much for being on TV Show and Tell. It is my pleasure. Anytime. It's fake or format time. And what would bring our 10th show to a more fitting and celebratory conclusion than just in winning a point? (laughs) So here we go. Two formats, but only one of them is true. Which is it? So the first one is Man Yurid An Yakun Hafizan, which is basically who wants to be in Hafiz. This is a current format on the Islam channel. Men are challenged to become a Hafiz, that's someone who can recite the entire Quran from memory, within three months. They then come to a studio to play a millionaire-style quiz, where the top prize is an all-expenses trip to perform the Hajj, the pilgrimage to Mecca. Okay. That's the first one. And the second one is Islamic Jeopardy. This was uh, on Huda TV in 2012, presented by Ali Ahmed, and it is basically the Jeopardy for people who are interested in Islam. Otherwise, it plays very much as the regular show. The game typically features categories such as Islamic cities, Salat Prayer, and the Prophet Dawood. So there you are. You've got basically who who wants to be a Hafiz or Islamic Jeopardy. (laughs) Uh, That's a hard one. I
1: give you much easier ones than this, I think. Hmm. Okay, I am going going to go for the first one. Who wants to be a Hafiz? On what basis? When I was working in Malaysia... I consulted on a show, which was a talent show for imams, which was done in a very glossy style, but was a terrific show um, to actually find the most talented young imam. And because I know that such shows exist, it, it makes me think that that show might
0: exist too. Well, I can tell you that the real format was Islamic Jeopardy. <sighs> <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's a, that is astonishing.
0: Yes, no, it was a, genuinely a thing.
1: What, where, where, where did it take place? I mean, what, what, on what channel and what
0: country? So this was on a channel called Huda TV. I very much get the impression uh, that it was something of a niche format that perhaps didn't actually pay the format fees <laughs> to Sony for Jeopardy for real. Something of an unofficial thing. There was another genuine format that I nearly used, which was the National Ramadan Quiz Show, which was uh, on the Islam channel, and they invite people to sort of come together as a family and effectively play together as an interactive quiz. There's a lot of television made for Ramadan. Because people
1: stay in, then in the Islamic world, Ramadan period is the peak, peak annual TV time. So that's the, that's the period that you're really competing for. And I've been involved in a number of bids where you know you're trying to do 30 episodes to cover you know every day on Ramadan or something. I had a big big quiz show in Saudi Arabia, a big 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 game show in Saudi Arabia that was entirely
0: aimed at Ramadan. <laughs> And that brings the festivities for our 10th episode spectacular to an end. But the after party continues via our Twitter account. That's at TV show podcast or email us on contact at TV dot Until next time, I've been David Bodicum and I've been Justin Scrookey, And this has been TV show and tell.